0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe, good morning. Israel is at war after a large-scale attack by Palestinian militants. Hundreds have been killed on both sides. We'll have the latest from the ground. And how is the White House responding to the attack?
1: In this moment of tragedy, I want to say to them and to the world and to terrorists everywhere, united states stands with israel
0: also in this hour we hear from writer roxane Gay about her new book opinions plus it's the rise of the group chats they're great for connecting but can be overwhelming stay plugged in without burning out it's sunday october 8th news is next
2: live from npr news in washington i'm nora rom the Israeli military says all residents in towns near the Gaza Boundary will be evacuated within the next 24 hours as Israel intensifies its offensive against Hamas. Hundreds of Palestinian gunmen have been killed and dozens arrested as fighting in several areas in southern Israel continues. The BBC's Frank Gardner has more.
1: One of the surprising things is usually when there is a conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, the casualties are far greater on the Palestinian side because Israel's got all the firepower. But so far this time, the casualties have been pretty similar, about 300 killed on both sides. And that's unusual. And that's been a real shock to Israelis actually.
2: The BBC's Frank Gardner. Countries around the Middle East are calling for calm as violence continues in Israel and the Gaza Strip. An attack by Hamas that included thousands of rockets fired into Israel and the ensuing Israeli military response have left hundreds of people dead on both
3: sides. NPR's Peter Kenyon has more. The general theme of the reaction has been to focus on ending the violence. The Saudi Foreign Ministry issued a statement calling for an immediate end to the escalation of the conflict. Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan spoke with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. A Saudi statement said the kingdom rejects the targeting of civilians and all sides should respect international humanitarian law. In Iran, hardliners have been incensed for months over reports that Saudi Arabia might establish diplomatic ties with Israel. In Tehran, the Foreign Ministry spokesman referred to Israeli visits to Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque as a desecration and called the attack, quote, a spontaneous move by resistance groups. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul.
2: Egyptian and Israeli authorities say two Israeli tourists were shot to death today in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. An Egyptian was also killed in the attack. There are reports the shooter was an Egyptian police officer. The Taliban rulers in Afghanistan now say more than 2,000 people died in a series of powerful earthquakes yesterday. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. Images shared by Afghan reporters showed at least one village reduced to mud and stone near the epicentre of the quakes, which struck Saturday. Taliban officials called on local and international aid agencies for assistance. The World Health Organization said it had dispatched ambulances to ferry out the wounded, mostly women and children. It was also assisting hospitals and medical centres nearby. But more generally, donors have been frustrated by the Taliban's own obstacles to allowing in more aid to the country, including bans on women working in most professions, including in UN agencies. A quake last year in a remote district of eastern Afghanistan killed more than a 1,000 people. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Mumbai. This is NPR News from Washington.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A Brockton-based mental health provider will pay a $700,000 settlement to resolve allegations that it submitted false claims to MassHealth. Attorney General Andrea Campbell alleges that Luminosity Behavioral Services billed MassHealth for higher levels of service than it provided. Luminosity also has agreed to a three-year compliance monitoring program at its own expense. The city of Cambridge is increasing its security protocols ahead of its election next month. Cambridge Day reports the city manager is recommending an additional 32 police officers at minimum to watch over voting sites. Election commission offices also will get a full-height lockable door and might get cameras. City officials say some aggressive people have threatened the staff. Grants for the Science on Screen initiative have been handed out this year. The Coolidge Corner Theater began the program in 2005 as a way to bring science and the arts together. Beth Gilligan is the deputy director of the theater in Brookline and says Science on Screen features classic cult and documentary films and matches them with experts to discuss the issues raised. She gives, as an example, Purple Rain.
5: We had a woman from Berkeley, Susan Rogers, who has studied psychology in the brain and the effect of music on the brain. And she also worked as a sound engineer for Prince on Purple Rain. So it was amazing.
4: The Alfred P. Sloan Foundation has awarded grants to 40 independent cinemas, museums and community groups for science on screen events across the country. A legend in Boston's Irish community has died. Brian O'Donovan was the longtime host of the GBH radio show, A Celtic Sojourn, and the stage production, A Christmas Celtic Sojourn. O'Donovan was diagnosed with brain cancer last year. He was 66 years old. It's 52 degrees in Boston sunshine today. Highs in the mid-60s, lows in the upper 40s overnight. A mostly sunny Monday for your holiday with highs tomorrow in the low 60s. This is
3: 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Rasko. Thank you for joining us. Israel is reeling a day after the Palestinian group Hamas launched a surprise attack from Gaza to the south. Israeli Public Broadcasting says Hamas has killed at least 600 Israelis and wounded more than 2,000. Israel has responded with hundreds of airstrikes on Gaza, where health officials say at least 300 people have been killed and nearly 2,000 wounded. Israel has also been fighting to take back control of communities where people were killed or taken hostage. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been talking to people on both sides and joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Aisha. So, Daniel, you're you're getting new details about just what did happen yesterday. and, And since then, what do we know at this point?
6: Well, we know we are learning that the scale of this invasion was much bigger than we were told initially. Israel says there were 29 points where militants crossed into Israel. And Israelis have been watching videos that Hamas has published showing gunmen coming in on paragliders, trucks, motorcycles, taking over military bases, driving military vehicles back into Gaza, and taking many Israelis hostage. We've seen videos of an elderly woman, of soldiers taken hostage. Uh, Israel has also still been fighting militants who are still been hunkered down in Israel still today. Um, Israel is pummeling Gaza high-rise buildings, and it also struck at Hezbollah in Lebanon after Hezbollah fired at Israel. So these developments, especially Israeli hostages and the fire from Hezbollah, those have a potential of escalating this war.
0: And we're going to get back to what you're hearing from Gaza in a couple of minutes. But you've been talking to Israelis who were in towns, attacked yesterday. What kind of stories are they telling?
6: Yeah, we visited the Soroka Medical Center. It's the main hospital in southern Israel where these events have been taking place. And people have been in shock. I saw scores of people outside the emergency room standing. Crouching on the ground, they had no information about where their missing children were. There were many parents whose children were at an outdoor festival, a rave, when gunmen stormed the party and sent them running. There was one mother, Batsheva Eluz, who was sitting on a plastic chair, rocking and praying. She was saying, he'll be back, he'll be back. He's alive, he's alive. Maybe they're looking for him in the field bring me my son. And she was there at the hospital with her friend, Daniela Zaitouni.
7: So we're here waiting. Waiting for? Information, something.
6: We met another man there, Meir Zohar, who was crying into his hands, waiting for news about his daughter who went missing at that party. He said, all of this has happened because of Israel's weakness. He was talking about Israeli military reservists who have skipped training during months of protests against the government's recent moves to weaken Israel's judiciary. He said, think of the intelligence failure, Hamas preparing the trucks, and no intelligence? (laughs) We met this man, Ro'i Shalev, he was in a hospital gown. He said he was at that party when six trucks with some 50 gunmen surrounded everyone and started shooting. He and his girlfriend crawled under a truck, pretended to be dead, but the gunmen shot them. He was shot in the back, and he doesn't know if his girlfriend is going to make it. He said Israel should, quote, wipe out Gaza. And I told him there are more than two million people living in Gaza. And he said, this is Israel's biggest disaster ever. They killed our loved ones. They kidnapped our elderly and our children. And this is something I heard a lot at the hospital, even from Palestinian citizens of Israel, like Adel Talagat. He says his sister was picking vegetables when the gunman came and killed her even after she said, I am Arab. He told me, they are Muslims? They're infidels. Gaza deserves to be wiped out. And then I walked into a hospital room, and I ran into someone I hadn't seen in years, a professor from my college days at Brandeis University outside Boston. He lives in Israel, Ilan Troen. He was wearing a Brandeis T-shirt and he was standing at the foot of his grandson's hospital bed. My and
1: daughter and
6: son-in-law were killed today.
1: But in their dying, saved his life. How? They fell into his body. They were all together in a secure room and they covered his body and he was saved. He, Nevertheless, a bullet penetrated
6: them and went into his abdomen. His teenage grandson, Rotem Matias, was there, asleep in the hospital bed. And he says the whole family stayed on the phone with the grandson for hours after his parents were killed. While he was hiding in the laundry room and then under the bed, the gunman returned.
1: And he could hear the Arabic the, the breaking of the glass, the kicking down of the door, and the coming back just to make sure they had done a good job, and he escaped.
6: Troen's daughter, Deborah and her husband, Shlomi Matias, were both musicians. She was a singer. He taught music at a mixed Arab and Jewish high school.
1: These are people who were committed to the good life for everybody, and uh, yet it is they who paid the price
6: for hatred. Troen is a professor of Israel studies, but he was at a loss for words to explain what had happened. He referenced the Shoah, the Holocaust.
1: The world does not work in a straight formula. We know that from the Shoah. We know that from all kinds of life experiences. This is just another one to add to the long list of events that we just
6: can't understand.
0: Briefly, Daniel, what's going on in Gaza now?
6: families have fled their homes to U.N. schools, which have served as shelters before. Uh, We've spoken to Palestinians with mixed feelings, some saying it was a great achievement what Hamas did. You know, Palestinians talk about being trapped in a blockaded territory with repeated rounds of conflict, high death tolls. This got them by surprise, though. And now the army says they're preparing for a ground invasion, which, as we've seen in the past, can lead to very high casualties.
0: NPR's Daniel Estrin, thank you and stay safe.
6: Thank you so much, Aisha.
0: U.S. money and weapons have flowed to Ukraine since last year in the tens of billions of dollars. That assistance is fast running out. And turmoil among House Republicans means an uncertain future for President Biden's request for more. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie has been looking into how this could affect the war. Thank you for joining us, Greg.
8: Hey, good to be here, Ayesha.
0: So, Greg, let's start with the money. How much money has the U.S. spent on Ukraine since the full-scale Russian invasion began last
8: year? It's now more than $75 billion. Uh, More than half of this is military assistance. The rest has gone for humanitarian aid and to fund the Ukrainian government so it can do things like pay government salaries. Now, this is far more money than the U.S. has given to any other country over this period. But another way to look at it is how critical this has been for Ukraine's war effort and how much damage Ukraine has inflicted on the Russian military. Here's Jason Crow, a Democratic congressman from Colorado.
9: We have spent about five percent of our annual defense budget. And with that money, the Ukrainians have destroyed over 60 percent of the Russian military. Now, if that's not a good bargain for the American taxpayer, and I don't know what is.
8: Also, he notes, there's not a single U.S. soldier who's actually fighting in Ukraine.
0: As of today, can the Biden administration still send assistance to Ukraine?
8: Yes, it can, but it's a rapidly dwindling figure. It's it's about $5 billion left that's been authorized but hasn't been spent. Now, John Kirby, the spokesman for the National Security Council, was pressed on how much longer the U.S. could keep sending aid.
2: There's about six to eight more weeks of decent weather here, uh, of good fighting weather, and we want to make sure that the Ukrainians can succeed. But... Absent additional funding by Congress, eventually, you run into a hard stop there. So what is
0: President Biden asking for?
8: He wants another $24 billion, and a little over half of this would be for military aid. That's designed to last until the end of the year. And realistically, it shouldn't be a problem. With some recent votes in Congress, it showed that about 70 percent of House members and close to 80 senators uh, still support aid to Ukraine. Yet the squabbling among House Republicans has prevented any action, and it's not clear how long it will take to get this resolved. Now, Congressman Crowe is a former army ranger who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's wary of another open-ended conflict overseas, even if it doesn't involve U.S. troops, but he. thinks the battle in Ukraine is too important for the U.S. to stand on the sidelines.
9: Well, I can tell you, Greg, I'm war weary. You know, last 20 years could not be classified as a success by most measures. And yet I'm a huge supporter of Ukraine.
0: What about European support for Ukraine? Like, is it doing enough? Could it do more if USA stops?
8: Well, you know, Aisha, European countries collectively have provided more overall assistance, military, economic, humanitarian, than the U.S. actually. This includes countries like Poland, which has taken in millions of Ukrainian refugees. But it's important to remember this has been a genuine multinational effort with the U.S. playing the lead role. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin convenes more than 50 countries on a near monthly basis to coordinate all this assistance for Ukraine. Uh, One country may provide tanks, another ammunition, a third may say that it has some spare fighter jets. But if U.S. assistance is interrupted, it could become harder to keep all these countries working in concert.
0: That's NPR's Greg Myrie. Thank you, Greg.
8: Sure thing, Aisha.
0: You're listening to NPR News.
4: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818, and coming right up here on 90.9 WBUR, Roxanne Gay discusses her new book, Opinions. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. Join us for a special culinary evening at City Space. James Beard-nominated chef Yaya Noor takes the stage Wednesday, October 18th to discuss Somali food, halal cooking, and his hit restaurant in East Boston. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 53 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the mid-60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you
10: that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu slash together.
2: I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. The Israeli military said today it is still fighting Hamas militants in several Israeli communities after yesterday's attacks. Israel has also launched airstrikes against Lebanon after mortar fire claimed by the Hezbollah militant group. The Biden administration says it stands firmly with the government and people of Israel. Officials are in consultations with Israel to determine what kind of military assistance is needed to respond to the Hamas attack. And Taliban officials said today more than 2,000 people were killed in earthquakes there yesterday. Previous estimates were much lower. They say entire villages were destroyed. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Smartmouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth Mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters or at smartmouth.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people, at WTGrantFDN.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ayesha Roscoe. Here in Washington, President Biden at the White House yesterday strongly condemned the attacks against
1: Israel. The United States stands with Israel. We will not ever fail to have their back.
0: NPR National Political Correspondent Mara Liasson joins us now. Good morning, Mara.
12: Good morning, Aisha.
0: So Biden said he offered Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu all appropriate means of support. Was it surprising at all to see Biden so forcefully come to Israel's
12: defense? Not at all. This was a big, unexpected, horrific attack. Biden's been a long-time staunch supporter of Israel And there's been bipartisan support for Israel in Congress. Clearly, Biden put aside the tensions between the U.S. and Israel over what Netanyahu is doing domestically in terms of his domestic reform. But a senior administration official who briefed the press yesterday said that it's not clear, it's too early to tell whether this conflict will affect the talks between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, One of the Biden administration's priorities is to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel in order to sideline Iran in the region and crowd out China. And those talks have just begun. It's unclear uh, to the administration whether these attacks will have any effect on them. Uh,
0: In terms of Congress, what's going to be happening there this week? Uh, Republicans still don't have a speaker.
12: No, they don't. They're coming back Tuesday and they're supposed to vote on a new speaker this week. There are two candidates, Steve Scalise from Louisiana. He's part of the House leadership, which, you would think would give him an edge, but his opponent is Jim Jordan, a Republican from Ohio who has been endorsed by Donald Trump, which might be more important. There's not a big ideological difference between these two men. Both are very conservative but one has the endorsement by Trump, which really matters in the House of Representatives. I think you'll see a lot of jockeying by these two over the next coming days. There's no indication that either of them has the 217 Republican votes it takes to win. Remember, Kevin McCarthy, the ousted speaker, took 15 ballots before he was elected speaker.
0: So, uh, I mean, speaking of Kevin McCarthy, I mean, he lasted less than nine months before he was ousted. Will the next speaker have the same troubles?
12: He very well might. The question is whether this new speaker will be held to the same rule as McCarthy was. That rule says that just one member can trigger a recall vote, trigger a, a motion to vacate, in other words, to fire the speaker. And to change that rule, you would need the Republicans would need 217 votes. They have a very small majority. They can only afford to lose a handful of votes because the Democrats aren't going to bail them out here. And one of the things we're watching is... What about those eight hard-right candidates who voted to depose McCarthy? Uh, This rule gives them an enormous amount of power. Would they want to give it up? Matt Gaetz of Florida, who's a leader of this group, has said he's open-minded to a rules change. Uh, We'll see if he really is.
0: So so now American voters say they want leaders who can get things done. What are the long-term political implications of, of this mess in the House?
12: Well, in the short term, long term, it looks like the House won't get anything done. There's a looming government shutdown. Remember, McCarthy passed a short term government funding bill with Democratic votes. That's one of the things that made the hard right Republican so angry with him because he crossed the aisle for this. And that kept the government open for 45 more days. But when that time is up, will there be a government shutdown? And if there is, how long will it be? If so, it could affect uh, 2024 politics. It will give Democrats an opportunity to paint the GOP as extremist and not interested in governing. Uh, Remember, there are 18 Republicans in the House that come from districts that Joe Biden won. They are the endangered Republicans, and Democrats only need five seats to get the majority back in the House. So... We'll see if this affects the uh, talks to pass a budget.
0: Uh, President Biden did something surprising last week. Um, He took the first steps to build more of the wall along the Mexico border. He had campaigned against doing that and said he wouldn't. What is happening here?
12: Right. He campaigned on, I think, not one foot of wall. He didn't like Donald Trump's wall, but now he's building it. Congress allocated money for another 20 miles of the wall. Uh, He has to spend that money. He says he tried and failed to get Congress to use the money for something else. He says he has no choice, although he could have gone to court to see if he could get out of this. But the politics of immigration are changing. It's not just Republicans who care about illegal immigration. Right now, you've got blue state and blue city politicians in Massachusetts, New York, uh, Illinois, who are telling the White House that they're overwhelmed by asylum seekers. They've been critical of Biden, and they want him to do something.
0: Uh, And in the few seconds we have left, how will that affect political support for Biden?
12: Well, I think it depends if he can get the border under control. I don't think a lot of Republicans who have immigration as their top issue will vote for him. But this is something that Democrats and independents care about, too.
0: NPR's Mara Eliason, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. These days, it seems like everyone has an opinion on everything. But what makes an opinion worth considering? Writer Roxanne Gay has an idea.
13: Is the opinion well articulated? Is the argument well supported? Does the author of the opinion have something that draws your attention to their work.
0: Roxane Gay has written for The New York Times, The Guardian, and other outlets. She's published a new collection of essays called Opinions. She told me it took a journey to find her voice.
13: The more you do something, the more comfortable you can become doing it. And it's more that I realized, why not me? Mm. What is really going to prevent me from sharing an opinion? You don't have to agree you don't have to like it. You don't have to like me. But I'm as entitled as anyone else to share my opinions.
0: And let's dig into some of the essays uh, in the book. Uh, one of the essays that stood out um, to me and, and and also to one of our producers was the essay about, like, why are Father's Day gifts so terrible? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a very simple subject, but it's really quite deep because it's 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 almost saying, why doesn't society... Think more of men or Uh men as fathers and give them a fuller experience of life apart from they grill and drink beer (laughs) and like wear ties.
13: (laughs) Yes. You know, every time I shop for my father for Father's Day or even his birthday, I tend to be flummoxed because there are so few readily available options that seem interesting. He doesn't really barbecue that much anymore. He doesn't drink whiskey. He does not need any more tumblers. And so how do we celebrate the men in our lives and let them know that they are appreciated for who they are and what they bring to our families? And that's challenging because we tend to valorize motherhood overall. And there are no problems finding things to give and Hallmark and the sort of greeting card industrial complex around Mother's Day and Valentine's Day has found myriad ways of compelling people to buy things for their mothers. And then Father's Day comes along and we see the same old tropes over and over. And I just think maybe our fathers deserve a little better.
0: Hmm. Is there a way you think that like uh, and and not that we have to have an answer for this, but a better way to celebrate men and like kind of free them from these like rigid, very rigid gender roles um, for that society gives them?
13: What I've done in recent years, especially now that I can afford it, is focus more on experiences, things that I know he likes to do. He loves NBA games. He loves Mm. going to live sports. He's gotten into football. Being able to get him two tickets to an event where he can go and do something and really have a lovely moment, that feels
0: really wonderful. Obviously, you've written about a wide range of things. Something that you've written a lot about is is race. You have an essay, uh, White Crime, and you talk about the shield that whiteness creates. and, Mm -hmm. And you write, whiteness provides instant redemption and unearned respect And Blackness, on the other hand, you say innocence and Blackness are seen as antithetical. When you write those things, are you hoping that people will receive them? Are you looking at them as a testament for this moment? Are you hoping to spur action? Is it all of the above?
13: It's a combination of all three of those things. Sometimes the obvious does need to be stated, because we're dealing with issues that are persistent and have lasted across generations. And it often feels like things aren't getting much better. So yes, we do need to bear witness. We do need to offer testimony, but we also need to articulate just how egregious these things are, extrajudicial murder, the lack of care or consideration for young Black people, how young Black people are considered adults while 35-year-old white men are considered children. We need to talk about these things. We need to name them, even if we don't offer solutions. And really, implicitly, you're being told in many of these essays, say something, talk to your friends and neighbors, change your attitudes, and recognize the crises that we're dealing with around race in this country.
0: You do reviews of other, um, you know, of other people's work. Um, And in Warning Signs of the Sacrifice, it was a, a review of the sacrifice by Joyce Carol Oates. You had some concerns, not about... The fact that Joyce Carol Oates uh, wrote about people that were different than her, the characters were different, but the way that it was handled, and you brought this up in other reviews too, I guess you say that it has to have empathy, that when you're writing about people who are different from you, you have to have empathy. How can you have empathy, I guess, without being patronizing?
13: We often overuse the word empathy, and it's just this empty placeholder for vibes. But (laughs) when I say that you should have empathy, it means that you should be writing about people regardless of whatever identities they inhabit, as if you have spent some time in that community and have a clear sense of who those people are. In The Sacrifice in particular, it just was not a good book. And that's okay. We all have bad books in us. So it's weird when people take it so profoundly personally. What Joyce Carol Oates did in that book was write about Blackness in ways that were at times, ludicrous, at times, offensive. And it just felt like she had never spent any time with another Black person, ever.
0: Mm. In pulling all of these opinions together, did you find any kind of unifying themes in in the chapters, or in the essays, or things that stood out to you? Or even like, oh, I say that a lot.
13: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Listen, there is something very humbling about pulling together a lot of pieces that you've written. I, I do notice certain tendencies and ticks that I have in my work. And I tend to do this thing where I sort of engage in the, uh, accumulation, where mm-hmm. I share Like, here are all the terrible things that are happening. Like, this is what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Here's the context into which I'm writing. Yeah. But when you write about the same things over and over again and terrible things keep happening, you have to keep doing that from piece to piece to piece. And when you take them as a whole, it's like, "Mm, yes. Okay, we do that a lot. What are we (laughs) going to try for the next book? (laughs) And so now I'm thinking of new ways to get, the effect that I'm going for without necessarily relying on that rhetorical approach so much. Um, but overall, as I read the book, you know, I've never ever really written anything that I'm ashamed of. I've grown as a writer and I think you can see that growth from some of the earlier pieces to the more recent pieces. I, I definitely see that I have a distinct voice. Like when I read something, I know I wrote it. And on the whole, I, have an interesting range of interests and I think viewpoints. And so the book has something to offer.
0: That's author Roxanne Gay talking about her collection of essays called Opinions. Thank you so much for joining us.
13: And thank you so much for having me.
0: Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Maryland's Child Victims Act went into effect at the beginning of this month. It abolished the statute of limitations for sexual abuse lawsuits and allowed people who may have been abused decades ago to sue their abusers. One of the main defendants was expected to be the Catholic Archdiocese of Baltimore. Except, as WIPR's Scott Mossione reports, the organization just declared
5: bankruptcy.
14: Teresa Lancaster and other survivors of sexual abuse were in shock.
5: Um, I had survivors calling me into the night, hysterical, asking what went wrong, what happened.
14: After decades, Lancaster was ready for her day in court, to tell her story to the public and to demand compensation for her abuse. It was a story she'd already told over and over and over, through decades of testimony trying to get Maryland's Child Victims Act into law.
15: I was there. I testified every year
5: at the Senate hearing in the the House.
14: The Child Victims Act abolished the statute of limitations to sue alleged sexual abusers in Maryland and allowed them to file suit for up to $1.5 million. But two days before it went into effect, the Archdiocese of Baltimore filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That puts a stop to all civil cases against the church, like Lancaster's, as the court looks at the church's assets and decides how it can go forward financially. It's a tactic many other dioceses and archdioceses across the nation have used. Maryland State Senator and Child Victims Act sponsor Will Smith says filing for bankruptcy is something legislatures were unable to prepare for with the law. This calls for kind of really a federal solution because it's, it's, you know, we couldn't change the Chapter 11 bankruptcy law at the state level. And so we knew that that was an option that they would likely pursue. There's nothing really we could do in that respect to curtail their activity with respect to them filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The law was crafted to allow people to file civil suits no matter when they decide to report their abuse. But the bankruptcy court may whittle down the time alleged victims have to claim restitution to as little as four months. That's important because according to recent studies, child sexual abuse survivors often don't come forward until their 50s. That was top of mind for Maryland Delegate C.T. Wilson when he sponsored the law.
1: The most important thing was basically giving these individuals, at whatever age they chose to come forward, an opportunity to face their abusers. And also, because I know they spend many of their waking hours trying to figure out why them and why not somebody else, why did people not believe them?
14: In April, a report from the Maryland Attorney General's office identified more than 600 alleged victims of the Baltimore Archdiocese over the last 80 years. However, lawyers representing the victims said they expected more than 1,000 people. Baltimore Archbishop William Lorrie says the bankruptcy filing is the only way to keep the church afloat. The church states its assets are worth about a quarter of a billion dollars. Robert Jenner, managing partner at Jenner Law, which represents some of the victims, says the bankruptcy proceedings slow down the payout process. Survivors get evaluated in a certain way, and then payouts occur. That process can take years. That's especially concerning for older victims in their 70s and 80s. The Child Victims Act isn't completely toothless, though. The church may have been the most egregious abuser, but it wasn't the only one. Many alleged victims not affiliated with the church will still be able to bring suit against those who abused them. But for those seeking compensation from the Catholic Church, the bankruptcy proceedings could go on for months or even years, adding time to the decades some have already waited. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore.
0: This is NPR News.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. In an update on the conflict in the Middle East, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today warned of a long and difficult war ahead. He says Israeli forces are moving into an offensive phase. Yesterday, Hamas militants launched a surprise attack on Israel. Gun manufacturer Smith & Wesson has opened its new manufacturing facility after leaving its Massachusetts headquarters. In 2021, the company announced it would leave Springfield, where it had been located since the mid-19th century. Smith & Wesson officials said they moved to Tennessee because legislative proposals in Massachusetts would have prohibited them from making certain weapons. In Massachusetts today is your chance to walk across the Wachusett Dam in Clinton. The dam's causeway will be open to the public from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. The state opens the area to the public for one day each fall and spring. It's 53 degrees in Boston sunshine today. Highs in the mid-60s. We're
15: funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. Hi, I'm Margaret Lowe, CEO of WBUR, here with a big thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our
16: fundraiser. We needed you to step up in a big way, and boy, did you. Fundraising has been really tough across the country, but once again, WBUR listeners rose to the challenge. We are blown away by your support thank you for believing thank you for giving if you didn't get a chance to give and you'd still like to go to WBR.org and click the donate button it's the one with the little heart next to it thank you
11: support for npr comes from this station and from american jewish world service supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy equity and justice for all people Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ayesha Roscoe. Sunday morning has arrived, and so you know what that means? It's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of The New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will.
17: Good morning, Aisha.
0: So, Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge?
17: Yes, it came from listener Jim Humphreys of Northampton, Massachusetts. I said, name a well-known U.S. city in four syllables. The first two syllables with a letter inserted will name an animal that might be found in the place named by the last syllable. What city is it? Well, the city is Kalamazoo. Stick an O inside the first two syllables. You get a koala, which can be found at a zoo.
0: Okay, so a a lot of y'all got this right. Y'all knew what this one was. There were more than 1,700 correct entries, and Jen Swedish of Arlington, Virginia, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Jen. Thank you. So, Jen, how long have you been playing the puzzle?
5: Believe it or not, this is my very first time playing, so it's been about a week.
0: Oh, my goodness. You got to go get that lottery ticket. I know. (laughs) (laughs) There are people at home just furious. Oh, my goodness. They're shaking their fists at the
17: (laughs) radio right now.
0: I listen
5: every week. Just this is the first time I've actually entered. So what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, I have three children who range in age from 4 to 11, so they keep me quite busy. Um, I also really enjoy the New York Times crossword, so I do some puzzling on the side as well.
0: Okay, well, I'm a mom of three as well with similar age range, so I know you're busy, and so then I know you can handle this puzzle, but I got to ask you, are you ready to play the puzzle? I am ready. Okay, take it away, Will.
17: All right, Jen and Aisha, every answer today is a familiar two-word phrase or name with the initials DH. For example, if I said batter who may substitute for a pitcher, you would say designated hitter. So here we go. Number one, the shape of DNA. Double helix. That is correct. Number two, a little-known contender who comes from behind to win. Hmm.
5: A little-known contender.
17: Yeah, like in a race, like in. A, oh,
5: a dark horse.
17: A dark mm-hmm. horse is it? A race ending in a tie.
5: Not a photo finish.
17: Yeah. You know, you if there's two or more contenders and they end in a tie, you'd say they finished in a. Dead heat. Dead heat, is it? A large room where students gather to eat. Dining hall. That's it. A road with a median. Double highway? A highway is right. Like an interstate. What would you call that if it has a median? Traffic going one direction. Oh, divided
5: highway. A divided
17: highway is right. What you may turn in order to enter a room.
5: Doorknob. No, that's a... Door
17: handle. Door handle is it. A person who works on a boat.
5: Deck hand.
17: That's it. A person who helps clean teeth and do fillings. Dental hygienist. That's it. Middle of an item sold at Dunkin'. Oh, a donut hole. A donut (laughs) hole. Volcanic crater on Oahu. Oh. The D is the name of a gem.
5: Diamond. Oh, Diamond Head.
17: Diamond Head, is it? Bruce Willis action film.
5: Die Hard.
17: That's it. How about a Clint Eastwood action film?
5: Oh, Dirty Harry.
17: Good. And here's your last one. Harry Potter and the Blank. It's the last book in the Harry Potter series. The Deathly Hallows. You oh got goodness.
0: it. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! You were really good. I didn't even have time to, to 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 help. You didn't need no help. That was awesome. How do you feel?
5: <laughs> Quite relieved. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you did an excellent job. You know those D-H double words. You know, you know that. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Jen, what member station do you listen to? W-A-M-U. Oh, awesome. Me too. That's Jen Swedish of Arlington, Virginia. Thank you for playing the puzzle.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, Will, what's next week's challenge?
17: Yes, it might be an easy one. We'll see. It's from listener Andrew Chaikin of San Francisco. Think of a mammal, an insect, and a bird in that order six, three, and four letters, respectively. Say them out loud, and you'll name something often seen around this time of year. What is it? So, again, a mammal, an insect, and a bird in that order six, three, and four letters respectively, say them out loud, and you'll name something often seen around this time of year. What is it?
0: When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, October 12th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of The New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will.
17: Thank you, Aisha.
0: So something I've noticed is that when I try to talk to my smart speaker, Alexa doesn't always get what I'm trying to say. And don't get me started on those apps that transcribe interviews. So why am I having all these issues? Well, it might be because I talk the way I do. Research has shown that a lot of automatic speech recognition technology, or ASR, doesn't work well for underrepresented accent groups like the black community. Howard University wants to change that, along with Google, which we should note is a financial supporter of NPR, they are building an African American English speech data set that will then be available to others looking to improve speech technology. Gloria Washington is an associate professor of computer science at Howard University and the principal investigator for the project called Elevate Black Voices. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me here today. I know firsthand the challenges of using the automatic speech recognition technologies, but what are you hearing from others in the Black community about their experiences using this type of tech?
18: really in a nutshell it it just boils down to what you just said across the board most of these tools have problems understanding black people when we're just being our normal selves living our normal lives trying to use the technology it creates to me this imposter syndrome that can live and breathe in the black community and hbcus like you can use the tech sometimes, but not really all the time. And it's not really there for you to be comfortable with. Mm.
0: So how will this new project address these issues? Is it dialect? Is that the issue? And how does this project address that? It really
18: has to do with the data that automatic speech recognition and these voice assistants are trained off of. So what we want to do is have and collect different data across the United States of different kinds and techniques of the way that Black people speak naturally. So... We're in the DMV, and of course, we had an event here where we got people just to talk about the uniqueness of the D.C. slang, and then we're also going to Atlanta, we're going to the Deep South, um, Alabama, and also um, Houston area, so we can collect some audio segments so that we can use them
0: later on down the line. This is like biometric data, right? And you know, this can be even more sensitive among marginalized communities. So, how are you tackling that part where people may feel like I don't know if I want them to have my my voice. What are they going to do with it? Definitely.
18: We created a set of guidelines starting out with that Google agreed to adhere to. And these guidelines just say that, basically, Google can't do anything to go out and find these individuals who provided their data. And any other tech company who decides to utilize the data set, they cannot go out and further marginalize the people who provided their data. For us, we're thinking of this entire thing as a collaboration with Google and that eventually the data will live and breathe and there'll be a consortium of HBCUs that protect and celebrate it.
0: What do you hope this project will achieve beyond being able to dictate a text message or ask, you know, Siri to look something up for you? What do you hope it will achieve? I hope that we
18: at Howard and all these HBCUs that truly care about uh, African-American English and Black people in general will create technology that we can be comfortable just being ourselves. An example is like maybe a version of a Siri or Alexa that has the ability to code switch where you can allow it to speak naturally African-American English to you and you could be comfortable interacting with it. That's my longer term goal. And I do hope that my students will feel empowered to create these many cool tools. And if they have that mentality that they can go in and utilize our
0: voice and our unique structures for something cool, I am all for it. That's Gloria Washington. She is an associate professor of computer science at Howard University. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Perhaps you've been there. Maybe you got a little busy with your day, working, folding laundry, feeding yourself or the family, and all of a sudden. The group chat is popping off. Now, which one is it? Is it the ones with your college friends, maybe the one with your work pals, or or maybe it's the dreaded family group chat? (laughs) We all know it's nice to be in touch with friends and family, but it can also be overwhelming to keep up with hundreds of messages. Faith Hill gets it. She's an editor at The Atlantic and wrote about group chats in her new article titled Group Chat Culture is Out of Control. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Full disclosure, I heard about this article in my group chat with my friends. (laughs) That's how I heard about it. And you write that the, the group chat is now the new social media. Like, why do you think that? It's
19: just sort of a weird time with social media right now where X, formerly known as Twitter, is sort of like falling apart and people are moving away from Facebook. It feels like Instagram is like mostly ads and kind of mimicking TikTok with recommended video content and um, it just feels like that's sort of, like, evolving away from actually, like, using social media to chat with your
0: friends. Mm, yeah, yeah. But, you know, even though they can be a bit overwhelming, like, group chats, especially, like, during the pandemic, were a way to feel more connected because you can still have these ongoing conversations with people that you, you know, love and care about.
19: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, group chats have a lot of amazing features. Um it would be impossible to just sort of, like, reach out to all these different people separately about, like, every dumb thing that happens in your day, you know, like the cute dog you see on the subway or, like. <laughs> but when you already have these spaces, like, it's really easy to just sort of casually let all these people know at once about this thing. And and then you get that from other people, and it is, like, I think really a space to feel this sort of, um, yeah, regular mundane intimacy. And it can almost be like you're going through your day together, which I think it can be really nice.
0: And you spoke to some researchers about like how to navigate the mini group chats and, and feeling, you know, bombarded with communications and and and, and messages. Like what, what did they tell you?
19: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the good features about group chats that I was just talking about can also be like the very Features that make them overwhelming, like it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, and then there's also not really a set etiquette for group chats. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> some of the researchers I was talking to were saying that, um, you know, because like in the span of history, we haven't had group chats or even just like texting for that long, and also because the features keep changing. We just, like, haven't been able to settle on expectations that everyone can agree on. You know, one thing they talked about in in terms of just advice for how to handle this is, like, sometimes you need to just be real with yourself about which group chats matter the most to you. So, you know, someone used this term, like, zombie chats, uh, which are sort of the chats that just keep going even though you are not that interested in them. Um, <laughs>
20: mm-hmm.
19: <laughs> you know, sometimes like if a group chat just has too many people and it's no longer people that you're close to anymore, that's almost like turning into what we were trying to get away from with the social media, where it feels like crowded and empty at the same time, just like sort of public and not as intimate.
0: So so how are you navigating this um, at this point? Are you Are lurking? Are you actively engaged in all of the chats or, or, you know, how how are you dealing with it?
19: I'm definitely still lurking in some of them. It's funny, after I published this piece, like, you know, it got shared in a bunch of the group chats I'm in. And for some of them, it was like, (laughs) I'm calling attention to the fact that I like haven't said anything
0: in a while. Like, sorry, guys. (laughs) Um. well i mean but that can be better for you to be quiet than you be talking too much my friends say that i i maybe talk a little too much but i say they get to you know the benefit of all of my thoughts (laughs) and that's a benefit in and of itself
19: that's so true i wish we were in group chats (laughs) together (laughs) i would love
0: it Faith Hill is a senior associate editor at The Atlantic. Faith, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roska.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
4: Thanks for joining us this morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. And start your Monday with WBUR tomorrow. If one Massachusetts lawmaker has anything to say about it, then the entire state will officially celebrate Indigenous People's Day next October. You'll hear about the path to change. That's tomorrow morning with Rupa Shinoy here on WBUR. It's 53 degrees in Boston sunshine today. Highs in the mid-60s. We are funded by you,
10: our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org.
21: Independent sellers on Amazon's platform say high fees have pushed them off the site.
14: The result is that Amazon ends up being the only seller
21: on like millions and millions of items. With the FTC and 17 states now suing the company for allegedly maintaining a monopoly, We'll take a look at the relationship between Amazon and its sellers. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News.
3: Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
22: I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA tisbury and 89one WBUH WBUR-BOOSTER. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR. BOSTON'S NPR NEWS STATION.
0: FROM NPR NEWS IN WASHINGTON, D.C., THIS IS WEEKEND EDITION. I'M Ayesha Roscoe. GOOD MORNING. ISRAEL VOWS TO ROOT OUT HAMAS AFTER A LARGE-SCALE ATTACK ON SATURDAY more on the impact of the conflict around the region. And a climate solution that's all about convenience, 15-minute cities, why experts say they could lower carbon emissions. Plus, singer Kobe Calais' new album along the way is all about finding meaning in heartbreak.
23: There's breakup songs that are mad at your ex, but this album is definitely one for those that can find the appreciation and nostalgia in
2: what they had.
0: It's Sunday, October 8th, news is next.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Israeli military said today it continues to battle Hamas militants in several communities a day after a wave of attacks. Israel is also conducting airstrikes in the Gaza Strip. The violence in the Middle East is expanding. Israel has bombed a Hezbollah site in Lebanon after the militant group fired at Israel. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports.
6: Hezbollah claimed responsibility for the mortar fire on Israel, which opens up the possibility of a multi-front conflict involving Israel, Gaza, and Lebanon. The scale of the Hamas offensive on Israel is unprecedented. Israel's military says Israeli soldiers and civilians, including children and families, have been taken hostage and are being held inside Gaza. The military says it's still trying to regain control over several Israeli residential communities and an army base where Gaza militants infiltrated Sunday morning. And it's beginning to evacuate Israeli civilians from the area. In Gaza, Israeli airstrikes destroyed multi-story buildings and Hamas members' homes. Gaza officials say several large families were killed in the airstrikes. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
2: The attack by Hamas has drawn international condemnation. NPR's
4: Michelle Kellerman has more. The UN's envoy for the region says there's been horrific scenes of violence and many Israeli casualties in what he described as a multi-front assault by Hamas. Hamas has also taken Israeli civilians hostage. The International Committee for the Red Cross says it's willing to play its role as a neutral intermediary and visit anyone detained. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reporting.
2: Taliban officials said today more than 2,000 people were killed in earthquakes there yesterday. Previous estimates were much lower. The U.S. Geological Survey said the first quake had a magnitude of 6.3 and was followed by strong aftershocks in Herat province in the western part of the country. Auto workers are still on strike against the big three U.S. automakers, more than three weeks after the walkout began. And as NPR's Danielle Kaye reports, the strike doesn't have a clear end in sight.
19: United Auto Workers President Sean Fain announced General Motors has agreed to include its electric vehicle battery plants in the union's national agreement. It's a win for workers concerned about job security. But even with this breakthrough, the strike could still last a while. No overall deals have been reached yet, and so far, the union hasn't targeted plants that make pickup trucks, which auto analyst Sam Fiorani calls the most profitable part of the automaker's business.
14: They're allowing the companies to still stay in business and just giving them enough pain to bring them to the table.
19: The longer the strike lasts, the more the union will have to tap into its strike fund to pay workers. But Fain says the UAW is prepared for a long fight if needed. Danielle Kay,
2: NPR News. This is NPR News from Washington.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Brockton's Good Samaritan Medical Center is back open after a major power outage forced it to partially close yesterday. The city announced the hospital's full reopening minutes ago. Last night, ambulances were being diverted to other hospitals. The city's only other hospital, Signature Healthcare Brockton Hospital, remains closed after a fire earlier this year. Halloween festivities are returning to schools in Northboro. The district superintendent previously called off the annual Halloween parade because he said the event did not align with the district's core values of equity and inclusion. He said some students were scared of costumes, some were anxious about marching in a parade, and in some cases Halloween did not align with families' beliefs. After parent pushback and an online petition, the district reversed course. Parades now will be held in each elementary school with alternatives for children who don't want to participate. This is the time of year that foliage tourists converge on New England. Cheryl Reardon is president of the White Mountain Attractions Association and says this holiday weekend rooms will be tough to find if you have not already booked a place.
12: We're seeing a boost in midweek business. And that's something we've actually been trying to work on or encourage folks that if they have the flexibility to travel midweek, the leaves don't go away on the weekend and come back (laughs) the following weekend.
4: Reardon says the two- to four-week autumn leaf season brings in about 25 percent of the annual profits for White Mountain businesses. She says some tour buses already are booking for the 2025 season. An iconic topper on a Cambridge church is coming down today after 150 years in that location. First Church Cambridge says the gilded cockerel weather vane is being removed to protect it from further damage caused by extreme weather, pollution, and its own age. The cockerel is 302 years old. It was created for a church in Boston's North End. It is 53 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, highs in the mid-60s, lows overnight in the upper 40s. For the holiday tomorrow, mostly sunny skies and highs in the low 60s. This is WBUR.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thanks for being with us. Israel's military continues to battle the militant group Hamas today after a surprise attack took the country off guard Saturday. At least 900 civilians and soldiers, Israelis and Palestinians, children and adults have been killed, according to counts from both sides. To understand more about how we got here, we turn to Yusuf Munair. He's a senior fellow at the Arab Center, Washington, D.C., which researches Arab-U.S. relations. Thank you for being with us.
21: Good morning. Good to be with you.
0: The top military commander for Hamas said his forces attacked Israel in part because of recent Israeli raids happening in the old city of Jerusalem around the Al-Aqsa Mosque. How did this area become such a flashpoint?
21: You know, there's an immediate context in the months and years before, but of course a decades long context as well. You know, the, the Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip, uh, the vast majority of them, uh, they've been refugees living inside of Gaza for 75 years. And this uh, is of course compounded by decades of military occupation. And in the last decade and a half, A brutal siege of the Gaza Strip which has held two million Palestinians there hostage. In recent years and months the escalation of violence against Palestinians has been noted by the United Nations and governments throughout the region who've been warning that this escalation of Israeli violence against Palestinians is going to lead to an explosion in the region
0: hamas is a group backed by iran does it look like iran played a role in this operation and and if so what is their motivation
21: And of course palestinian grievances with israel long predate the existence of hamas as an organization and long predate the existence of the islamic republic of iran of course there are all kinds of regional players that have roles and and interests in regional conflicts But the Palestinian issue with Israel goes back to the root and the core, which is the displacement of Palestinians from their towns and villages and the denial of freedom, Palestinians, by the Israeli government since then.
0: But but just to be clear, not to belabor the point, but you, you don't disagree with the fact that Iran may be providing financial or other support to Hamas.
21: Yeah, I think that there is support for Hamas and other groups in Gaza that comes from Iran and also from other places as well. And there's, of course, support for a lot of actors in the region that come from many different directions.
0: Do you feel like it is important to distinguish between Palestinians and Hamas? Because now you have uh, the Israeli government saying that they are going to root out Hamas completely. So is there a way to distinguish Hamas and Palestinians?
21: Well, I think that when we're talking about the battlefield, There uh, needs to be clearly distinguishing between those who are involved in hostilities and those who are. The vast majority of Palestinians in that space who are going to be affected by this are not participating in the hostilities at all, even if they may have uh, very clear grievances uh, with Israel and want to see the struggle for freedom succeed.
0: Is there a path to de-escalation, maybe one that involves nations like the U.S.?
21: You know, I think the path to de-escalation has always been clear. Um, It involves the application of international law and the respect for human rights. But we seem to talk about these things in moments like this, when there is, of course, an escalation in hostilities, particularly as Israelis are being targeted with violence. But once these moments end, that conversation seems to go by the wayside and no uh, progress or commitment to the application of international law and human rights for Palestinians is made. Uh, And then we find ourselves in this position a few years later wondering how we got here.
0: Youssef Munair is the head of the Palestine-Israel program and senior fellow at the Arab Center, Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us.
21: Thanks for having me.
0: The Supreme Court is back in session. And one of the cases coming up this term has to do with, now get this, herring, as in fish not a red herring. But this case is about way more than fishing. It's about a 40-year-old legal doctrine about government power the Chevron Doctrine. And that's one of the most cited, if not the most cited administrative law decisions in Supreme Court history. Andrew Mergen spent 30 years as an attorney at the Department of Justice, Environment and Natural Resources Division. He now directs the Emmett Environmental Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law School. Welcome to the program.
24: Thank you so much, Aisha. I'm so glad to be here.
0: So let's start with the basics. What is the Chevron Doctrine and and where did it come from?
24: When Congress enacts legislation, a law, it's telling an agency how to do its business. But Congress couldn't possibly include all of the fine details, the fine-grained instruction necessary for agencies to conduct their business. So the doctrine relates to how agencies fill that void in an ambiguous statute. They look at the statute and they promulgate rules and they say, this is what we understand Congress to have told us to do. And when a court is confronted with that interpretation, the Chevron doctrine says that it should defer to the agency so long as the agency's interpretation of the statute is reasonable. That's a very deferential standard. And uh, it has been in place, as you note, for a long time, since 19.
0: and and so the case about the fish, about the herring that the Supreme Court will consider this term is called Lopez Bright Enterprises versus Romando as in Commerce Secretary Gina Romando. What does this case have to do with the Chevron doctrine?
24: So our fisheries are governed by a law from 1976. Regulators have understood that it's helpful to have somebody on board to see what sort of fish are being caught, uh, and if too many fish are being caught or the wrong species are being caught, and to record that data. Uh, The fishermen at issue here are from Cape May, New Jersey. And what they're complaining about is not the actual observer, because the law is crystal clear that the agency can have an observer on your vessel. But the agency uh, interpreted the law to require the fishermen to pay for the observer. Um, And I think it's it's interesting that the case arises in this circumstance because Chevron applies so broadly, but it allows the people challenging the doctrine to tell a story about sort of hardworking fishermen, you know, further burdened by government. But I think we shouldn't lose sight that Chevron is so much more broad than this particular application.
0: But but why is this a big deal? Like, why would someone not like – who doesn't like the Chevron doctrine? I would imagine it's probably companies and things like that. But who doesn't like it, and why do they want it overturned?
24: Yeah, that's a really important question because I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact – that this particular context is is sort of unique, but the doctrine's applied every day in a million circumstances. The agencies are making fine-grained judgments about sort of what Congress intended and reflecting that in rules. So who would be opposed to the agency applying that expertise? I think you're right. It's really, really big corporations. There's a movement, a, a part of the conservative movement that wants to make government smaller. And they view that this rule as empowering the government to go beyond what Congress has intended. But I would submit to you that the reality is that government needs this sort of flexibility, and that when Justice Stevens wrote the decision in 1984, what he was recognizing was, one, that the agencies have a lot of expertise, and that if you don't like what the agencies are doing, you vote for a different president. So the people making the decision are accountable to the american people through elections
0: and have there been many cases when a federal agency interprets a statute in one way and then congress steps in and says you're taking this too far we didn't mean this this way like have there been cases of that
24: i mean congress has that ability to say to the agency you've gone too far and what's more under the congressional review act they can now review Um, regulations before they're implemented, right? So Congress has a lot of ways to make its intentions known.
0: What would happen if, you know, Congress passes a law, let's just say about, you know, car safety, and then someone disagrees with it, you know, whatever the agency does on it, what will happen if you didn't have the Chevron doctrine?
24: There's a couple of things I want to say about that. One is that Chevron judges are busy people, especially federal judges who are hearing these challenges. They are busy, busy people. And the doctrine allows them to focus on one aspect of the rulemaking, whether it's reasonable. And if you get rid of the doctrine, then you're asking them to sort of start from first principles uh, in terms of like mastering the expertise. And I think the result of losing the Chevron doctrine will be to bog courts down and create instability. And importantly, there are several conservative law scholars who agree with that. They have told the court in amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs, that doing away with the doctrine creates instability and does away with sort of rule of law values in terms of consistency on the part of the courts.
0: That's Andrew Mergen, director of the Emmett Environmental Law and Policy Clinic at Harvard Law School. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You're listening to NPR News.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear from a teenager and her mother about the impact of a new Nebraska law restricting gender-affirming care. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. When a mass shooting occurs in the U.S., the questions begin. Who did it and why and why can't we make it stop? What's often forgotten, the centuries of history that got us here. The Gun Machine podcast from WBUR explores this background, guns, government, and the Massachusetts roots of the situation. Listen and follow The Gun Machine on your podcast app.
3: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health, with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. Brighamandwomens.org.
2: I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Fighting continues in several Israeli communities today, one day after Hamas militants from Gaza attacked Israel has also conducted hundreds of airstrikes in the Gaza Strip and has bombed a Hezbollah site in Lebanon after the militant group fired at Israel. An American mountain climber and a guide from Nepal died in avalanches yesterday in Tibet. Another American and her Nepalese guide are missing. They were among more than 50 climbers trying to reach the summit. And the Justice Department says almost 1,200 people have now been charged in connection with the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, by a mob of Trump supporters. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a varied selection of species to bring year-round interest to landscapes and gardens. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash native shrubs. From Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at MadeInCookware.com and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The Hamas military commander behind one of the worst attacks on on Israel in decades has called for a regional war in the hopes that sympathetic nations would join him. But reaction from nearby states has been mixed. Protests in Yemen and Turkey broke out in support of the Palestinians, but there are also calls for an end to the violence. NPR's Peter Kenyon has been looking at reactions from around the region and joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, Aisha. So what kind of reactions are you seeing so far?
3: Well, uh, in addition to those protests you mentioned, there has been a theme of calm, being pleased for calm and protecting civilian lives. A typical reaction came from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, the Saudi Foreign Ministry called for an immediate halt to the escalation of the conflict. Uh, the Foreign Minister spoke with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, called for, on all sides to respect international humanitarian law. Now the Saudi reaction is significant in part because the Kingdom has been talking with the White House about a possible move to establish diplomatic relations with Israel. That would be a massive geopolitical shift in the region. Uh, It has drawn praise in many quarters, but condemnation in others, uh, notably in Iran.
0: And, And has there been any reaction to this attack from Iran?
3: Yes, Iran's foreign ministry spokesman called the attack, quote, a spontaneous move by the resistance groups and the oppressed Palestinian people in defense of what he called their undeniable rights. Uh, the Iranian spokesman pointed to Israeli visits to Islamic holy sites, notably the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, by groups that he called, quote, extremist and racist Zionists. Now, both Israelis and Palestinians consider that site sacred, and Israelis say they have every right to visit. Now, when it comes to Iran, many have have condemned Tehran's support for terrorist groups, and some commentators are describing this Hamas attack as being carried out by Iran-backed terrorists. And as I mentioned, this all took place against the backdrop of a potential rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Now, Iranian media in recent months have been filled with articles condemning such a move and warning that it could thrust the region into chaos. Uh, Supporters of the move, on the other hand, contend that one of its positive effects would be to further isolate Iran from the international community.
0: Uh, What other reactions are you seeing?
3: Well, King Abdullah II of Jordan spoke with President Joe Biden and he called for stronger international efforts to stop the violence from escalating. Uh, At the Al-Azhar Mosque in Cairo, uh, there was a different approach. Uh, It voiced solidarity with the Palestinians and was critical of what it called double standards by the international community uh, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, And uh, for Lebanon, for its part, launched an attack across Israel's northern border. Uh, Now, others echoed Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, though. He said, quote, we call for restraint from all parties, adding that they must refrain from aggressive acts. Now, from beyond, Beyond the reason, of course, President Joe Biden has promised to make sure Israel has what it needs to defend itself. And China, deeply influential in the region, said it is concerned over the escalation of tensions and violence, adding that it shows once again that the standstill of the peace process cannot last.
0: That's NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Aisha. A panel of three federal judges has chosen a new congressional map for Alabama. It's expected to result in one additional Black and Democratic Congressperson for the state and one fewer White and Republican member. This comes after lengthy court battles brought by plaintiffs who said the map drawn by the state legislature violated the Voting Rights Act. Troy Public Radio's Kyle, Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett has these reactions. Well,
25: on a sunny saturday morning danny banks is picking up produce at a curb market in downtown montgomery just blocks away from the state house when asked whether past elections in alabama were fair to all voters both black and white banks doesn't hesitate in my opinion i don't feel it has been maybe this is an opportunity to have some fairness alabama has seven congressional districts with the new maps Black voters will now have a reasonable opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice in two of them. Standing near a table of baked goods, Banks has a pastry-based analogy of the new maps. It's like a pie. There's a slice. and There's enough for everyone to have something in their favor. Cutting up that pie to create new districts has been contentious. After a lower court and the Supreme Court ruled that the state needed maps that better represented black voters, the job of redrawing them went to the Alabama legislature. The Republican dominated legislature failed to create reasonably representative maps. And so the lower court ordered a special master to draw the maps that were chosen this week. John Wall is the chairman of the Alabama Republican Party. He believes it's the new maps that are a violation of the Voting Rights Act, creating new districts that are gerrymandered by race.
24: They force the state, they force the special master, and they force voters to think about people based on the color of their skin and race.
25: Wall says some Republicans may make the decision in the coming weeks to run in these new districts. The question on their minds is how winnable are they? Republicans also say they're not done trying to appeal the ruling that created the maps. But I think that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, would deny that appeal. I, I really, truly believe it. Anthony Daniels is a Democrat and the minority leader in the Alabama House. He says Democrats are also not entirely happy with the maps chosen this week. They have concerns that in the future, black voters will move from the area to find different jobs across the state. That might mean fighting again to have new districts redrawn.
17: So you'll be back to where you are in 10 years from now, trying to figure out a way to get the districts to change to be a majority, minority, or quite close. Still,
25: Daniel says the new maps are better than the old ones. And he reminds his colleagues. At the end of the day, oatmeal is better than no meal. Democrats have already started the process of qualifying for the next election, and Republicans start later this month. The first primary is in March 2024. From NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama.
0: It's been one week since Nebraska's restrictions on gender affirming care went into effect. No one under the age of 19 is permitted to undergo related surgery, and medications are subject to a variety of restrictions. Lawmakers say they're concerned young people are making these decisions too early. Nebraska is one of 22 states that have approved such laws. Nola Ray, a trans teenager in Lincoln, Nebraska, has been speaking out against the bill since it was announced. Along with her mother, Heather, Nola and Heather Ray join us now to give us their reactions to the new law. Thank you both so much for joining us.
22: Yes, thank you for having us. Hi. So.
0: Nola, I want to start with you. Like, what has it been like for you growing up as a trans person in Nebraska?
9: Um, It's been good, actually, for the most part. There was, like, one person who wasn't cool. But then, like, everybody else at school, it was really nice. And everything was going really well until the legislature was like, we're going to intervene. We can't allow trans people to be happy. That would be ridiculous.
0: NOLA began receiving gender-affirming care in um, 2020. Talk to us about, you know, how the both of you came to that decision and and, and what that process was was like.
22: Yeah, so NOLA struggled with mental health, um, confidence, depression, gender dysphoria previous to that. Um, And then when she came out to me that this is what that she was trans and this is what's causing these things. Um, We started to see a therapist. And then after several months of therapy, the therapist and her superior recommended that we see an endocrinologist. And then they recommended um, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormone therapy. Uh, But that really changed her competence and her ability to Engage socially and academically and just in life. And she has been way stronger mentally since then. And this law, it doesn't affect minors
0: who are already receiving puberty blockers or hormone therapy, right? So, so Nola, you've basically been grandfathered in so you can continue with your treatment. Yeah and so like i guess how do you feel about that because you can continue on but then obviously it's affecting other teens who are going through similar experiences that you've gone through
9: yeah i i feel a similar way about it as i do to like i'm going to move for college so like i wouldn't be subject to whatever bill they cook up next but i don't feel like a lot of people who are younger than me and trans are going to have that same luxury. And it makes me sad. How does
0: it feel, Nola, that basically you have to leave your home to feel safe to continue on just being yourself? Like, how does that
9: feel? I mean, it doesn't feel good. (laughs) Um, I realized a few weeks ago that I was moving to flee government persecution And that was a really weird realization when I put it that way. Um, I feel like everybody should be free to be who they are. You know, maybe that would be respected a bit more. Yeah, it's annoying. My mom cries a lot because it's like you have a whole mass of people in the government telling you you're mentally ill, your mom's mentally ill. Your mom's an abuser. For supporting you and doing things that have unambiguously made your life much better, it's ridiculous.
0: The state is is still working out details on how it's going to restrict non-surgery care. Um, the temporary rules call for a quote unquote clinically neutral talk therapy before receiving any medication. I, I mean, do you think that's reasonable or is it
22: unrealistic to ask of people? It's not very clearly defined, is it? And so I don't know how you can provide a transgender person the care they need by being ambiguous and not validating what they're saying is happening to them, not to mention the cost prohibitiveness of the same guideline. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you know, there's the outright ban that Nebraska now has on gender-affirming surgery until someone's 19. Um, The argument that the lawmakers are making is that they want to make sure no one makes a decision they'll later regret. What do you say
9: to that argument? Um, There are people who do transition, and that's okay. But, like, I think... To say, oh, well, you know, there's a small risk that they might change their mind later. So we shouldn't let them, you know, be happy. But like the pros and cons of that should be considered between a doctor and a patient, not between the state and everybody else.
0: You know, I, Nola, you talked about going to college next year. I, what are your plans for college? Where do you want to go to college? What are you going to major in? What What are your plans for your future?
9: I want to go to college in Minnesota. Mm. Um, I'd like to major in sociology and economics. And I'd like to hopefully someday go into law and be a lawyer. Um. I would also like to go into politics um which i mean how many times do you hear that story oh this young ambitious person wants to go into politics and make people's lives better but it's true i do
0: (laughs) yeah
9: yeah so hopefully i actually can make people's lives better
0: That's trans teenager Nola Ray and her mother, Heather Ray, speaking to us from Lincoln, Nebraska. Thank you so much for joining
9: us. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The Biden administration is moving forward with a controversial plan to build a new section of the border wall in Texas. It's waiving more than two dozen federal environmental laws to add 20 miles to the barrier. And that's even though President Biden previously pledged he would not add another foot of border wall. The White House made the decision while another surge of migrants comes across the southern border. Angela Kocherga with member station KTEP joins us from El Paso, one of the border cities, seeing a spike in asylum seekers. Angela, good morning.
16: Good morning, Aisha.
0: So tell us, what's the situation where you are uh, along the border right now? Well, after a very sharp decline in people crossing the southern
16: border... That started in May. We're seeing a record number of migrants again, about 200,000 in September alone. There are large groups riding on top of rail cars through Mexico to reach the border city, Juarez, which is just across the border from El Paso. And the migrants are mostly from Venezuela, Once they reach this area, they camp right at the border fence where there's actually a gate, and they turn themselves into border patrol agents asking for asylum. Nonprofit groups and the city of El Paso have been helping shelter thousands of migrants in recent weeks after those migrants are released to await immigration court hearings.
0: Uh, So President Trump, or so then President Trump, built 450 miles of border walls Now, uh, President Biden is adding another 20 miles. Uh, Do these barriers actually reduce uh, undocumented immigration?
16: Well, it it depends. Uh, There's very little impact on those who are seeking asylum, which is a legal process, because those migrants are not sneaking in but they're turning themselves in, as we said, to border patrol agents. Now, the barriers might deter some people, but mostly those walls or fences divert them to other areas. And those who are determined go around, go under, and climb over the towering fences. Here in El Paso, we routinely see that people use ladders or other tools, and some fall, resulting in serious injuries and even death. Now, border patrol does see the wall or fence as one tool to slow migration. But increasingly, they are relying on technology to detect illegal crossings and apprehend people. Ground sensors, autonomous tower cameras that use AI and, and drones.
0: So President Biden says he's not changing his policy, that basically he had to spend this money because it was already appropriated. Uh, but Angela, plenty of people are objecting to this move and, and they are, are criticizing it. Tell us about them. President
16: Biden's supporters are not happy, advocates, immigrant advocates, and the opposition to the wall includes El Paso Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, a democrat who says the money can be better spent on technology and modern equipment to secure the border and another texas congressman henry cuellar said in his words a border wall is a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem environmental groups are very concerned that the wall construction is happening in south texas in an area that is home to several endangered species including the ocelot, which is a small spotted wild cat. They say the burial will stop cross-border migration, which is really critical. And the Center for Biological Diversity describes it as a horrifying step backwards for the borderlands.
0: That's reporter Angela Cocherga with member station KTEP in El Paso, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is NPR News.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. In an update on the deadly conflict in the Middle East, fighting continues in Israel. One day after Hamas launched its largest surprise attacks on Israel in decades, Israel has retaliated with major strikes on cities in Gaza. Authorities say at least 500 people have been killed in Israel and Gaza. Today Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned his country to brace for a long and difficult war. Brockton's Good Samaritan Medical Center is open again this morning after a major power outage forced it to partially close yesterday. Last night, ambulances were being diverted to other hospitals. The city's only other hospital, Signature Healthcare Brockton Hospital, remains closed after a fire earlier this year. Festivals converge in Somerville and Cambridge today. The 41st annual Harvard Square Oktoberfest gets underway at noon with beer gardens, live music, arts and crafts, and international food vendors. In Somerville, the Honk Festival holds a parade today featuring dozens of bands. That parade begins in Davis Square at noon and wraps up in Harvard Square.
20: We're
10: funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com and the Wheeler School for students in nursery through grade 12. Discover where your curiosity can take you at Wheeler, October 21st, open house, wheelerschool.org.
3: On last week's Wait, Wait, the TV writers on our panel discussed the benefits of going on strike.
19: Yeah, I feel like this is, as a writer, this is the hottest I've ever been. <laughs> so many steps. Yeah, I've been walking this whole, my legs are amazing.
3: I'm Peter Sagel. To get all the benefits of this week's show with special guest solicitor general of the United States Elizabeth Prelogar, listen while briskly walking in circles. That's the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ayesha Roscoe. Over the past week, NPR listeners have learned about all kinds of inspiring and innovative ways to address the climate crisis, from cargo ships running on wind power to cut down on emissions, to women in the Himalayan foothills that are learning how to revive spring water, To keep Climate Solutions Week rolling, I'm joined by Julia Simon, NPR's Climate Solutions Reporter. Welcome to the program. Hi, Aisha. So I hear that you've got a story about a specific climate solution that's been spreading through cities around the world. Where do we start?
26: We start in the neighborhood where I used to live, in Paris. So I am on my old Parisian street a little cobblestone passage with vines covering the buildings and I tried an experiment with my stopwatch and see where I can go by foot in 15 minutes. Let's go. Allons-y. In one minute, I made it to l'école maternelle, a preschool. I made it to a bookstore in three minutes, pharmacy in four minutes the bakery in a little more than five minutes. Okay, I just had to get a baguette while I'm here. Are you kidding me? Another park? All in a 15-minute walk. Aisha, what I experienced is a blueprint for a global climate solution called the 15-Minute City. So what does that mean? It's a city where you can get the key things in your life in a 15-minute walk, bike ride, or transit ride from your home. On the banks of the Seine in Paris, I met the person behind the idea.
15: Bueno, Colombia,
21: sí.
26: ah, qué bien. Carlos Moreno is Franco-Colombian. He's an urbanist. My old dense neighborhood was built more than a century ago. But Moreno's been helping the mayor of Paris foster these neighborhoods across the city. They're converting old military buildings, old parking structures into buildings with a mix of apartments, offices, businesses. They're building parks, hundreds of miles of protected bike lanes. And and, and so is this climate solution because it reduces cars. Yes, cars are nearly 10% of global energy related carbon dioxide pollution. Moreno started in Paris, but this idea of ecological 15 minute cities is spreading across the world.
14: I saw a news article about this big phenomenon being created in Paris around the 15 minute city.
26: This is Justin Bibb, who is now the mayor of Cleveland.
14: I read up on it. I'm like, oh, the dots are connecting for me now.
26: He thought of when he studied abroad in London and would walk to class and walk to restaurants.
14: I thought about my childhood. I lived in a 15-minute city neighborhood at the time.
26: He thought, I want more of this for Cleveland. When he came into office last year, he got to work on it. So, So how is he putting this into place? Bibb's office immediately found there are lots of technical 15-minute cities in Cleveland, but the walk isn't so easy. There may be buses, but they don't run so frequently. So it's in the early stages of working on infrastructure, more public transit, sidewalks, bike lanes. But Aisha, there are some key obstacles for 15-minute cities. And the first one is conspiracy theories. To explain, we start in West Oxfordshire in the UK with county councillor Duncan Enright. He's been trying to make what are essentially bus lanes. And last year, he was at this community meeting with some people he doesn't recognize.
9: Anyway, at a certain point in the meeting, one of them stood up and said, "Uh, what about 15-minute cities? And to be honest, first, never heard of that phrase.
26: He got agitated. Enright went over.
9: And they were explaining all about... um, this, this theory about 15 minute cities, by which they meant you would only be able to travel 15 minutes from your home.
26: So what is this conspiracy theory exactly? Basically, the false accusation is that a cabal of global elites will use 15 minute cities to limit people's movement and trap them in open air prisons. Here's Enright.
9: And I explained to them that my job is to make travel easier so people can go wherever they like to find opportunity, jobs, education, not to stop people going more than 15 minutes.
0: So, so how did we get from bus lanes uh, to this false idea about open air prisons?
26: Misinformation around climate change used to focus on denying global warming. Now attacks focus on climate solutions. Often, the idea that climate change is this pretext for stripping people's civil liberties. Here's podcaster Joe Rogan last month.
25: It'll essentially be contained unless you get permission to leave. Highly, yeah. How are they going to put this in there? The idea they're they're starting to roll out in Hmm. Europe.
26: Last week, the Secretary of State for Transport in the U.K. used some of the language of 15-minute city conspiracies. It's getting mainstream.
0: So how do these conspiracy theories um, hinder the 15-minute cities?
26: Enright and his colleagues started getting death threats. Carlos Moreno got death threats, too. Moreno says other researchers and scientists he know have faced attacks, which makes them reluctant to publish about their work on climate solutions. So
0: are there obstacles that are specific
26: to the U.S.? Yes, zoning to build only single-family homes. Here's Jonathan Levine, professor of urban planning at University of Michigan.
20: Would I say that it's a problem? It's enormous. The single-family zone absolutely dominates residential land in all of our metropolitan areas areas.
26: Levine says single family zoning traces back to policies of segregation. It reduces density because you can't fit as many people onto a lot with a house compared to an apartment. And all this zoning precludes establishing retail businesses, which make 15 minute cities possible.
0: All right. So so what's the last big obstacle that you found for 15 minute cities?
26: Public schools, when urban U.S. couples have kids, they often leave cities for suburbs, which they think have better schools. They kind of opt out of more sustainable urban living.
0: So, Julia, you have spent a lot of time thinking about 15-minute cities. How hopeful
26: are you that the U.S. and other countries can actually achieve this? It can feel like 15-minute cities are just inevitable in a place like Europe because Europeans have never been as car crazy as Americans. And Levine says, no, Europeans loved cars after World War II. The difference is they decided to move away from cars.
20: The result that many Americans find desirable, wow, isn't it wonderful? We go to Europe, we can walk, we can take the bus, is a policy choice. It's not preordained.
26: So, Bogota, cities around the world have made policies to promote public transit and walking. We saw in the pandemic cities can transform away from cars quickly. But Moreno says how fast comes down to communities and political will. That's NPR's Julia
0: Simon. Julia, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you, Aisha. And now some updates on the conflict in Israel. A U.N. refugee agency says over 20,000 Palestinians were sheltering in schools around Gaza. That's as Israel showers rockets on Gaza and promises further retaliation for the surprise attack by Hamas. In Gaza, translator Ruba Akila told NPR the Israeli airstrikes kept people awake. All night, She said that every time she puts bread in her mouth, she's worried it's the last time she'll eat. That every time she prays, she thinks it will be the last time she prays. Officials from both sides said that at least 900 people have been killed. Stay tuned to NPR for more updates on the situation. Kobe Calais burst onto the charts with a joyful, effervescent track. Bubbly back in 2007. Starting my toes makes me crinkle
7: my nose wherever it goes. I always know that you make me smile. Please stay for a while now, just take your time
0: wherever you go. Remember that? Listen to that song, and it's hard to not just smile. What followed were Grammy, MTV, and Billboard Awards, writing songs for artists like Brian McKnight, and collaborations with Jason Mraz and Taylor Swift. Calais moved to Nashville a few years back, and you can hear that country influence on her seventh album, Along the Way, which just dropped on Friday. And I'm joins us now. Welcome to the program.
23: Thank you so much.
0: Nice chatting with you. Yeah, so so you were a California girl, born and bred, um, and you could hear that carefree, sunny vibe like in your music, but tell us a bit about your decision to move to Nashville. So,
23: yeah, I'm from Southern California and I wanted to live somewhere different, and so I moved there seven years ago and it really feels like home.
7: From California where the sun shines through now in Tennessee, and missing you. Times they will be changing with the seasons as they do. Life is always what you make it. It's okay. The
23: past while something new. You know this whole album is actually a breakup album but I wanted to express it in a loving, understanding way and I was sitting in my room at, in my house in Nashville and I was looking on my wall and all my shelves and I was looking at my three dogs and a picture of me and my ex that you know we spent 10 years together and I just started listing all these things that I loved so much that that was my foundation and also at the same time I was now this woman on my own single for the first time since I was 23 and you know really looking forward to the future and what it had in store for me
0: you know I mean it it definitely is a, a heartbreak album and you know listening to it I could you know the music was music that I could I could feel it there were more good days
7: than bad more smiles than tears we were more happy than sad when we were us we were fierce somewhere along the way lovers drifted apart and even though i didn't stay you have a place in my heart i know it wasn't perfect but loving you was worth
0: and it just seems like a common thread in this album is kind of learning about like how not to regret relationships at the end because you also have meant for me and buy-in time. Talk to me a little bit about the Worth It really set the tone
23: for the record of how I wanted to, you know, show love and respect to the relationship I had and explain how much I learned from it. And then the song meant for me I was realizing how people can be meant for you in your life but maybe only temporarily. There's breakup songs that are mad at your ex and that you know help you through those times when when someone maybe wronged you and you know we've all needed those songs but this album is definitely one for those that can find the appreciation and nostalgia in what they had.
0: What is it like to kind of write an album where you are being vulnerable? It's so deeply personal. Like, how, how does that feel to make and then to put out into the world? You know, songwriting is very therapeutic. And
23: what makes songwriting so special is that you can write about something that you're going through in life. And when people hear it, it connects with them. And there is always that aspect that, you know, the person you wrote it about, what are they going to think? And I, I also think that that's okay for some reason I feel less vulnerable sharing it in a song
0: mm. and 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 there's this really pretty duet with cheryl Crow, i'll be here for you if you need someone to
7: believe in if you're real
0: that duet come about? Is, did you guys just kind of bump into each other around Nashville? I think Sheryl Crow lives there too, or did you know each other from before? Yeah, you know, she does live in Nashville. We're, we're kind of neighbors.
23: She lives like 10 minutes away from me, but I got to open up for her tour about 10 years ago, and she was incredible. I mean, I've always been a huge fan of her music. She's been a, an influence of mine. And a few years ago when I started thinking about writing a new record i asked her if she wanted to sing a duet with me and she said yes and then it took me like two years to actually or three years to make the record and only a few months ago i reached out again and i was like is that offer still there are you still interested in singing with me and she said yes and we recorded it really quickly we went to her house and recorded her vocal Uh, just a couple months ago.
0: So you're in the country genre now. Um, Do you plan on staying in that genre? I really just was focused
23: on this record and it wasn't even a a record I planned on writing. It just, you know, when the pandemic hit and my relationship ended, I was, all of a sudden it was like this new world I was living in, this new life. And as far as future music, I really think I don't set out to do a certain record or, or genre. Anything is possible.
0: That's Kobe Calais. Her album, Along the Way, is out now. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much, Aisha.
5: Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Learn more about the music and artists you hear on NPR and discover new music by visiting npr.org music. There you can also watch a Tiny Desk concert or get an exclusive first listen of new music.
0: You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Our theme music is by B.J. Leaderman. I'm Aisha Roscoe.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Seed. Seed's DSO1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health. At Seed.com/public. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. Start your Monday with WBUR tomorrow, and efforts underway to get Massachusetts to officially celebrate Indigenous People's Day next October. You'll hear about The Path to Change. That's tomorrow morning with Rupa Shinoy here on 90.9 WBUR.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Institute for Learning in Retirement. Join a vibrant academic community. Enjoy in-person peer-led courses on their Cambridge campus, speaker events, special interest groups, and more. Apply by October 25th to start in February. To learn more, visit their website, the Harvard Institute for Learning in Retirement.
19: From WBUR
26: in Boston, I'm Rupa Chinoy.
15: I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. This is On Point.
26: I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston.
6: I'm Scott Tong.
26: I'm Deepa Fernandes.
15: I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks.